Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. My name is Elsie Granderson, and my dilemma is this. In the state of Arizona, where I spend a significant chunk of my time, medicinal marijuana is not allowed without a card. And the medicinal level of marijuana is significantly higher than the recreational that's allowed in Arizona. So my dilemma is, do I continue to only smoke in California where the pot is good, or do I do the bootleg version that's in Arizona? Ah, this is a true dilemma. And to be honest, one that could only be handled by an expert. The best of the best. A marijuana maestro, a pot professional, a weed wizard, a kush connoisseur. You get the point. So I'm outsourcing. This ain't a job for the commish. It is a job for one of my favorite people on earth, Lorianne. But who is Lorianne Olbrich? Well, she's currently on year two of a one-year sabbatical. She drives a convertible. She's one half of the Norbrish couple. Brad, the other half, is an actor, and he's the voice of Bullwinkle. Yeah, the moose. So if you want to go support him, it's streaming now on Amazon Prime. Go watch it. Uh, she's been known to get so high that she told her dad Home Depot is responsible for the best hot dogs ever made. She's the expert you're looking for. Lorianne, what you got for LZ? Okay, here we go. A totally understandable dilemma. I mean, I'm going to go out on a limb and say yes, medical grade marijuana in California is way better than Arizona weed. But what you have here is a weed opportunity. You get to go back in time and remember the simpler days of marijuana when the weed you got was just weed from like a guy. First, I suggest smoking weed in both places. Come on, it's fun and relaxing and it doesn't give you a hangover. So I'm always going to say smoke weed. But as for smoking weed in Arizona, I say get real old school with your paraphernalia. Get one of those volcanoes where the weed smoke gets pumped into a turkey bag or have a special Arizona bong. Give it a name. Make it a thing. Then just get high. Smoke weed like it was grown in a weird, damp barn in the middle of Michigan. Will it be the best high you've ever had? No, but I mean, you'll be high, so that's nice. Here's how I look at it. Smoking medical-grade marijuana, it's like having a glass of Johnny Walker Blue in a wood-paneled room. It's filled with leather armchairs and all your funnest friends. And smoking Arizona weed... Well, that's like having an ice-cold beer in your best buddy's backyard. Both wonderful experiences, but different levels, you know what I mean? And if you're really missing the heft of the medical marijuana, there is a way to fix that. Smoke a boatload of weed. Stemmy, seedy, just okay weed. I told you a call to the bullpen was the right move. That's what she said. Hey! So if you're wondering why this intro sounds less than perfect in terms of audio quality, well, I'm not at my home. I'm not in my studio with a fancy mic and audio foam on all the walls around me. My return flight after my cousin's wedding in New Jersey got delayed seven plus hours. And I was going to land around 2 a.m. at the earliest, turn around and come right back to Newark a day later. So I left the airport after about five hours waiting booked a hotel and, and just figured, figure out the rest of it later. Uh, crossing my fingers that this recording in a hotel room with a very loud AC unit sounds okay. Um, hoping also that this is the least complicated thing I'm going to have to square away this week. Uh, cause I got to book a studio for radio. I got to find a place to get COVID tested to enter that studio. I got to buy shoes and outfits and stuff to fill and host around the horn on Thursday and Friday. And I'm definitely going to need to buy some underwear. I did not bring enough for an extra five days. It's all going to work out, though. Many worse problems to have. Got to keep everything in perspective. And talking to this week's guest actually put a lot of things in perspective. Elsie Granderson is an ABC News political contributor, LA Times columnist, co-host of Sedano, Elsie, and Kaplan on ESPN LA 710. You've seen him on Outside the Lines, Around the Horn, Sports Center. 
He also taught sports journalism at Northwestern, and his TED Talk has more than 1.5 million views. He hosts the new ABC News pod, Life Out Loud, and I've worked with LZ over the years, but did not know about all of the things that he had to overcome en route to being incredibly successful and leading this incredibly happy life. So I really think you're going to be inspired listening to his story. That's what she said. Super excited to have Elsie Granderson on the pod, someone who I've uh, shared the stage, the, I guess, uh, not literal, but uh, from across the country for Around the Horn and interacted with at ESPN across different occasions and with whom I share a wedding anniversary, same day, same year, same state even uh, for our wedding festivities. Um, But so much to get to today with your new podcast. And before we can get into what's now, we have to start with what came before. So LZ, what kind of kid were you? And did you have this voice when you were five? Oh, my gosh. First of all, <laughs> it is so awesome being with you. <laughs> I love the fact that you have the same anniversary and yeah. like it did like the exact same everything. That's so yep. awesome. <laughs> um, and I feel like more pressure not to get divorced. Yeah, um, ditto. We, we're in a race to see who lasts the longest. We're both <laughs> at five years and one week right now. <laughs> exactly. And trust me, it wasn't all smooth. Um, <laughs> um, I would say that I was a very complicated kid, um, which makes sense because I'm a complicated adult. But, you know, I was wrestling with um, being somewhat of an only child. Uh, between my biological mother and my biological father. So all of my other siblings are, you know, a mixture of hacking, right? Fathers, mothers, blah, 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 blah. Which led to a very sort of complicated relationship with my siblings. Um, so that's one element of it. Uh, I had a physically abusive stepfather. So that was another, you know, sort of obstacle to children navigate growing up as a kid. And then, of course, around seven or eight, um, I started noticing same-sex attractions, um, which I had already heard from people around wasn't a good thing. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to juggle all of this stuff all at once while trying to, you know, learn how to shoot like Isaiah Thomas while watching the Pistons <laughs> growing up. So. so did you live primarily with your mother or father or did you go to both places? Uh, I lived with my mother. Um, I visited my father maybe five times um, before he passed away. Um, And most of those were as an adult. So yeah, definitely my mother. But you had a relationship with your half siblings through your father or not until later? Uh, I wouldn't really call it a relationship. Uh, We were introduced to each other. And we would grunt occasionally when we pass each other, but I wouldn't call it a relationship. (laughs) Okay. So lots of sort of having to navigate who you were within the family structure. And then was the stepfather abusive to both you and your mother or just you? Just me. And I suspect it was because, um, you know, I wasn't his. Right. Basically. Yeah. You know, so, you know, when you get some distance from, you know, traumatic events in life, and you begin to peel the onion, uh, you just see things a lot clearer. And for me, that clarity has allowed me to detach some of the emotions that were linked to it. Um, I don't know if that's another version of a self-defense mechanism that I've created as an adult, or if that's really speaking about some level of revelation, but right. that's just where I am now. Did, um, what did your, your mom and stepfather do for a living? Uh, so my mom was basically like a homemaker for people. Um, she worked for a service that uh, helped with uh, giving home care, giving to the elderly. And my stepfather worked for Ford in the factory line. Okay. So Detroit uh, raised and potentially then the journalism and the storytelling came from that love of hoops. <laughs> it actually came from my love of reading and writing, actually. Nice. Um yeah, I didn't really know I could be a sports journalist until I was in college. <laughs> I just knew I loved to write and I knew I loved to read. And so I just continued to pursue those passions. But um, it didn't really click in terms of sports journalism until I was talking to uh, an Associated Press reporter who was an adjunct and asked me what I wanted to do. And I told him and he asked me how many internships have I had. And I said internships. <laughs> and and yeah, he basically saved my career before I graduated. 
because I had no internships, no experience, didn't even know I could do sports journalism. I thought I was just going to do like uh, board meetings and stuff. Right, right, right. So this is at Western Michigan in Kalamazoo. Uh-huh. Um, wait, real quick, go back. So you go by the name LZ, the letter L, the letter Z, but your yep. given name is LZ, E-L-Z-I-E. What's the origin of the name and why did you make that switch? Um, oh, it goes back to my beautiful childhood. Um, <laughs> so my father is E-L-Z-I-E. And um, one day I ran away from home and I went to his house and I'm pretty sure I was bleeding. I had just been beaten mm-hmm. and I was begging him to stay and uh, he wouldn't take me in. Mm-hmm. He actually called my mom to come pick me up. And when I got home, I was beaten for running away from home mm-hmm. from, from the beating. Anyway, um, as you can imagine, the last thing you want is to be reminded of him of that day, just of anything connected to any of that. And so that for me really began with looking at the way that I wrote my name each and every time I represented myself, being reminded of, of yeah. that dysfunctional relationship. So I told myself I would uh, keep the phonetics and change the spelling, and that will allow me uh, some level of peace. And interesting enough, uh, my son is also LZ, but he is officially the letter L in the letter Z uh, because <laughs> he represents yeah. exactly a better relationship between father and son. Um, I remember I had a, a doorman at the building I used to live in. His name was Trabor. And I finally uh-huh. asked him, like, what's the name? And he said, it's Robert backwards because my mom wanted me to be nothing like my father. And I thought that was so fascinating. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Really, wow. really fascinating. Um, did your mom uh, try to help you with your stepfather? Um, I'm sure she did. Uh at the time, it was hard to see it. Um, I'll admit, as an adult, I still struggle at times. But I ultimately understand her perspective. And I think that's more important. Right. Um, that's allowed our relationship to continue on in somewhat of a healthy fashion. Because until I reached that level of understanding and, and grace, uh, our relationship, as you can imagine, uh, wasn't very good. Mm-hmm. But uh, she, she lives with me now. So oh, wow. that just lets you know about the power of God and forgiveness right. and, and all that good stuff. And like you said, kind of self-preservation. What do you want going forward? And how do you have to reconcile the past if you do want something going forward, even if it might not be the easiest way to, to deal with it? Exactly. It's how I try to live life and relationships. And actually how I select my wine, too, which is, you know. <laughs> how you're going to feel about it later weird. when you wake up how in I'm the morning? F- Girl, come on. Is it organic? How much sugar's in there? <laughs> I'm like, are you really trying to go? Are you really trying to buy two bottles at that price because yeah, hell no. it's cheaper? Yeah, there but... are things you don't want to deal on: plastic surgery, wine, <laughs> wedding rings. Exactly, <laughs> wedding rings. Um, so you're you're Ooh, in Western two Michigan. spots for the price of one. I could do two yeah, spots exactly. for the price of one. Yeah, no, you don't want that. I literally, when I moved to LA, there were ads in the like LA Times or whatever newspaper Mother's Day specials on plastic surgery. I'm like, ah, no one wants a cheap nose job. Um, also, very LA. It was a good introduction to the whole. Very vibe. LA. Um, oh, totally. Yeah. So you were at Western Michigan, and you went on to grad school. Yes. Yes, I went to Grand Valley State University. And that's where you came out to friends. And what about your family? That's when the process really had vocabulary attached to it. Okay. Um, before that, um, there were words that were used to describe what I was feeling and addressing it. Um, but there wasn't a vocabulary that put together a coherent sentence that made sense to me until I was in grad school. Um, and I know that sounds like a bunch, like a word salad, like out of this world, but um, it, it, it truly is what happened in the sense of I was getting clues about who I was throughout my entire life, but I was also getting clues about who I should not be throughout my entire life. Mm-hmm. And it was like trying to make sense out of that gobbledygook as a kid is nearly impossible. And by the time I got to undergrad, I had um, become an evangelical Christian. I had given my life to Christ and thus whatever fragments of a sentence I was putting together prior to that were basically ignored and wiped clean as I was trying to pray the gay away. 
Mm. So, so it was a, it was a long process. Um, you know, for me, I won't say compared to other people because everyone has their own journeys and their own, you know, demons they must slay. But for me, it was a long process um, of just getting to the point in which I could hear my own voice, which I guess is ironic considering my voice is what I do for a living today. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I would say I was voiceless because I didn't know who I was until I was in grad school. Slight detour. When was the acting stuff in the early 90s? Where does that fit in after school? Uh, so I started doing theater. I, when I say complicated, totally complicated. I was a <laughs> drug dealing uh, oh. theater kid. So, <laughs> what kind of drugs? So, Hard stuff or uh, the oh kind God, that you're no, just currently pot. looking for in Arizona? <laughs> the kind of, I was going to say, you know, the kind that's been gentrified. Yeah, um, the longest relationship you've ever had. <laughs> right. But when I was coming up, doggone it, you could actually get in trouble for pot. Yeah, um, yeah, unfortunately, yeah. 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 Um, but, but yeah, so uh, I did theater throughout high school. Um, actually did theater uh, throughout college as well, undergrad, and did some movies, got cast in the movies, got plucked from a crowd by one casting agent, which mm. was always both cool and scary, Yeah, you know, and ultimately was the reason why I left, um, realizing the randomness of it was just something I would have to come to accept, and it didn't really matter how, how, how hard I worked, mm-hmm. how good I was or was not there was just a degree of randomness to it that was just hard for me. And the um, name of the game is rejection over and over and, and over again. Which, that's, the, that's, which, the, that's the common. And then every once in a while you hit. Which is okay. You know, obviously we're journalists, right? You hear no a lot as journalists too. So it was never the, the no that, that I wasn't happy with. It was what made the yes I was right. uncomfortable with. Mm-hmm. Agreed. No, like I moved out to L.A. for the same thing. And I felt like it was oh. just who you randomly meet and whose ass you kiss. And I felt like in journalism, it was about the work you put in and what you knew and how you did. And that felt more yeah. reasonable to me as someone who had always been a hard worker. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Because we're from the Midwest. Midwest right. people are That's better. right. That's right. Yeah. Um, okay. So um, let's get back on track to, to grad school okay. because- I know you um you were you were married and that's your son is from that marriage to a woman. Yep. Um uh-huh. how did you meet her and was that was that a young love? Yes, it was. We were kind of high school sweethearts. <laughs> As in we lived near each other. Uh we went to uh she got a car and thus we rode uh to school every day with each other. Um uh, but I actually met her uh, officially because we were always in the same high school, the last day of school like hmm. our junior year. Um, we rode the bus to school at the time. And last day of school is June. The back of the bus is where the engine is. And we're both just sweating profusely. <laughs> and I just, I think I said something to her about, you know, how perfect it was for the last day of school to be on the back of the bus, just sweating our asses all the way back home. <laughs> and she got a laugh and we kind of hit our, our friendship. And she was already an evangelical Christian at that time. Mm. So we ended up at the same college um, together. I was actually riding my bike and noticed her and called out her name and we we caught up and stuff. And we were both in theater at the time, but we didn't develop a romantic relationship until um, I gave my life to Christ. And um, I became much more intentional in terms of trying to be a heterosexual male. Right. So that's what I was going to ask. That was an intention. And you now consider yourself and you don't have to label it if it doesn't feel appropriate, but you consider yourself gay and not queer or by um, that, that attraction or that relationship was not natural for you. Didn't feel natural. Um, it was not, um, you know, and I had queer, you know, gay. I did at one point identify as bisexual, but I was still trying to figure out what the hell I was. (laughs) Um, Definitely black. Pistons, Lakers, Lions, Rams fan. I can keep going with the labels if you want. (laughs) Uh, But, but, but yeah, I, I, once I, once I gave my life to Christ, I one gazillion percent believed that, um, he will heal me and right. that the, and that the demons that were pursuing me, um, would, would go away. 
And I used to like sleep on my church floor, on the altar of my church um, overnight. Um, I fasted uh, Mm -hmm. weeks on end. Um, Was exposed to uh, the sort of gay conversion uh, therapy at one point. Um, I did a lot, you know? So when I, so when I came out, Sarah and the church started to reject me and people started to second guess me and told me I was going to hell. I had peace because I knew in my heart of hearts, I had done everything to appease my Lord in that fashion, in terms of dealing with my sexual orientation. And it wasn't until he told me that he made me this way. (laughs) Things make sense. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's, it's so heartbreaking to have to go through all that to end up kind of where you began, except for that, like you just said, because of that, you were able to truly know deeply and without any question and reservation that, that this is how you're made and meant to be. And anybody who believes otherwise is wrong. And then you can hopefully inspire other people to not have to go through some of the same things to get to get to where you are. Um, so you're married to a woman. Uh-huh. Yep. What's the timeline for the first couple jobs in in journalism? Atlanta Journal Constitution, South Bend Tribune, Grand Rapids Press. So you bounced around a bit. Um, is this all I was, early? I was on? promiscuous. Yeah. I was, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I mean. So I interned at the KZU, the Kalamazoo Gazette. I um, then became a stringer there throughout college, which shored up my um, professional skills, which was a fantastic uh, a gift from them. Um, it's also where, <laughs> this is a great story. So just as a quick aside, at the Kalamazoo Gazette, there was a wonderful woman there by the name of Margaret DeRitter. And Margaret was one of the editors. I believe she was the features editor at the time. And Margaret was out. And, and Margaret and I had struck up a friendship. And we both had talked about our love of fishing a lot. Like, I really like fishing a lot. And she said, hey, we should go fishing together one day, blah, 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 blah. So I said, great. I met her. We're at the water. We have a boat. We go out. We're going fishing. And we're just having our normal conversation. And she says to me, um, there's a new organization starting that you might be interested in. And I was just sort of like, uh, well, you know, what is it? And then she told me it was the National Lesbian Gay Journalists Association. Now, at the time, I'm still married to my wife. Does she know that? I'm, yes, yes. I'm in the closet. <laughs> I, I am I am praying. I am fasting. I am doing everything possible. And I'm in the closet. And she just sort of says, hey, you know. And I said, well, I'm not uh, gay. She was like, oh, no. She said, I'm just saying that it's just something that everyone can be a part of. You don't have to be gay to be a part of it. She was the very beginnings of it. Um, and I remember thinking on the way back, like, I don't know why she's talking to me about gay people. I'm not gay. I'm not even sure why she even brought that up. I'm not going to be in the part of her because she must be crazy. But did you actually <laughs> think that you weren't gay or did you wonder why did she think that about me? Oh, no. What, you know, am I giving it, off it, that it, vibe? It was a I don't know why she would say that to me, because in my head, I was straight. Right. Um, and so because it was the demons I, that wasn't actually you. Exactly. Right. And so I bring that up because today um, I'm in the National Lesbian Gay Journalist Hall of Fame. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Yep. <laughs> and, and I was named Journalist of the Year. Yeah. So, yeah. It all checks out. It's a journey for so us I, all. Yeah. So it was, a, it was a journey. So, you know, Margaret was ahead of the curve by a couple was. of decades. She was on to something, as it turns out. She was on to something. So the Gazette was the worst spot. Early, but we were quite ready for him. <laughs> I was like, what the hell? <laughs> uh, so, so Gazette, then the Grand Rapids Press. No, Kazoo Gazette, then the South Bend Tribune, then the Grand Rapids Press, uh, then the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, okay. and, then, and then ESPN. And it was sports, politics, education, entertainment, all sorts of stuff across these, these spaces. And um, you joined ESPN uh, what year? Uh, the year that LeBron came into the league. Wow. Okay. It, and I remember oh, that incredible because rookie season for both of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember that because it was the first piece I had in the magazine. So okay. he's on the cover and my very first piece is in that magazine. That's awesome. I love that. 
so it's 2003, if I remember correctly. Um, and you worked with the magazine and page two, you had your own interview show on, I think it was what ESPN three was what it was called at the time. ESPN three. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, no, no. It was ESPN 360 at the time. Oh, okay. Okay. Wow. Um, yes. yeah. So, I mean, you, you did any number of jobs at ESPN and that's 2003. So we'll fast forward and in 2012, you come out publicly in a column for CNN. So what happens between the I married? Why does this woman think there's any possibility I would want to join this organization to publicly uh, announcing that you were gay? Well, you know, what's funny about that column. And you're, you're not wrong in the sense of I come out as gay in the column. But the fact is, is that I had been out my entire career <laughs> and I had written about being openly gay in the past hmm. in the various places that I've written, but because it was CNN, obviously the platform was significantly larger. And so it was the assumption that I came out, you know, 10 years ago, but I actually right. had been out since the nineties. <laughs> Wait, hold on. Let's, let's reconcile this timeline because you were in your mind, not gay and married and didn't know why she was asking you about that in those yep. early gigs. So when would you say you reconciled with yourself? I've done all I can. This is not about. I would say 19, myself. I would say 1997. Okay. So it was a long time before that. So 1997 was my son had been born in 96. And I remember holding him one day while he was sleeping and I was saying a, a soft prayer. And one aspect of the prayer was I wanted him to be a man of integrity. Mm. I wanted him to be a man of great integrity. And softly as I said that to him, the response in my heart was that it needed to begin with me. That if I want him to be something, then I need to show him how to be it. Mm -hmm. I need to lead by my own example. And that's when everything clicked shortly after my son was born in December. So by 1997, I've now accepted who I am and I knew I needed to in order to be the man that I want my son to be. You know, uh, I'm obsessed with Glennon Doyle and her book Untamed. And there's a whole segment in there about people who martyr themselves in the name of their children, not recognizing that they're actually giving their children this incredible burden. The idea that they are the reason that their parents stopped living or they are the reason that their parents didn't make the choices that would make themselves happy. And then they only have permission to live as fully as their parents allowed themselves to live, which could mean staying in a bad relationship or not pursuing something. And that there's this balance of what you want to give your kids and also allowing yourself to live in a way that inspires them to do the same. And that mm -hmm. sounds like that moment for you, right? This understanding of how can you demand or hope for something for your child that you wouldn't hope for yourself, um, which yeah. is incredibly powerful. Uh, so now you have to tell your wife, I presume. Yeah, I had to let her in on the secret. Oh, <laughs> it's really hard to come out of closet Useful without, for you know. Her to know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't great, as you could imagine. Um, she was aware of the um, demons as they were being characterized at the time. But um, this wasn't me talking about a demonic attack. This was oh, so you had spoken to her out. about that feeling of yeah, the I, I had are to. Doing this. Okay, well, I had to because of the um, gay conversion stuff that I was oh, um, experimenting with. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, which which was religious based, but I, then again, I guess they all are because right. they aren't scientifically based. So whatever. Right. <laughs> um, but but yeah, so that was not a great conversation. It was awful. I re I remember. Um, very vividly the day I moved out. I remember the day I moved into the apartment on the second floor. I remember the pancakes I had uh, mm. for dinner at mm. the Red Geranium Cafe. And how uh, old are you at this point? I, let's see, what is this? 97? So I'm like 24. Wow. Yeah. 24. So what did you think about what this meant for your relationship with your son, especially understanding your own fraught relationship with your father? Um, well, I knew that um, I wasn't going to be my father. Yeah. I knew that. And so um, I knew it 
long before I got married. Like, I knew I would never do to another person what was done to me, which is to make them feel unloved. So I knew there, there was no chance that I was going to repeat that from my father. But um, the, there were things that I did get from my father that were applied um, to how my son and I interact, which is interesting enough, you know, getting to that place of forgiveness with him and re re recognizing that even though we spent maybe a handful of time together, that I still got things from him and have mm -hmm. incorporated them in my life and wasn't even cognizant of it until much later. Hmm. Okay. So you're mid twenties, which is when most of us are figuring out who we are anyway. So it was just a bigger right. transition for you than the rest of us. Yeah. We, we so there was a divorce court involved. Other than that, right, it was the right, same right, thing. Right, right, right. 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 Um, so this is then many years or uh, six or seven years before you get to ESPN. So by the time you're at ESPN, you are out to friends, family, publicly. It's just not the focus of your work. Right. 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 Okay. Um, I mean, I got brought into ESPN to be a basketball editor, NBA editor. I love ball so much. My boys <laughs> and I growing up in Detroit used to shovel the snow off of the parks so that we could play in the dead of winter. Amazing. So being the NBA editor at ESPN the magazine was everything. We'll get right back to the interview. But first, what is your favorite word? Yes. Yes. The best word. A word that does it all. It leans into an opportunity, accepts a proposal, affirms the work of others, celebrates a win, steps up to responsibility supports an improv premise yes and yes and so much more it's from the old english so be it which originally meant you know something stronger than just a simple affirmative um and the yes varieties came later in 1863 yeah in 1889 yep and in 1906 yup it's a great word just say yes speaking of great words you're gonna learn today the word of the week is panglossian characterized by or given to extreme optimism, especially in the face of unrelieved hardship or adversity, or alternatively, marked by the view that all is for the best in this best of possible worlds. It's from 1831, uh, from the French Pangloss, the name of the philosopher and tutor in Voltaire's 1758 satirical novel, Candide. And according to Etymology Online, the term was usually used sort of ironically or disparagingly for an extreme optimist, uh, but I use it here uh, with no irony in a sentence or two. As I sat in the Newark airport, my flight delay growing longer and longer, rather than bemoaning my lot in life, I thought how lucky I was to not have kids to entertain for hours, an event or a work requirement to get home to immediately. In fact, how lucky to be stuck in the very place I needed to be just days later. Why not book a hotel, get the hell out of the airport and figure it out from there? I attribute this Panglossian approach to years of gratitude practice. Not woe is me for the situation, but how lucky am I that it could have been worse. Now let's get back to the interview. Okay, so you're at ESPN for a number of years, doing a, a pretty wide variety of things. And in addition to that, like you said, you did the column for CNN um, 2016. So now it's, uh, my math isn't very good, but I want to say 20 years or so after you officially came out to your wife and started this sort of new life uh, is when you're inducted into the Hall of Fame for National Lesbian and Gay Journalists. Um, and um, I wonder that transition of, of being in the spaces that you were in at, say, the Grand Rapids Press or Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and then ESPN or somewhere else, um, in one as a married father, and then in another as a single gay man. Um, did you feel like you were treated differently? Did you recognize people or players or places that didn't feel welcoming because of that? Oh, I'm treated differently today. <laughs> I'm just, you know, I just know how to, how to roll, you know? Um, and when I first tried to get into sports, like I literally had a, a interviewer call me faggot, like during the interview. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. 
like, like the person interviewing you for the job? Yeah. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Said that I was a, a really good writer and a smart reporter, but he couldn't send a faggot into the locker room. Mm. And that I should try the women's section. Mm. Which I did, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Which I did. I like that. We can't send women into the men's area. Also, we can't send gay men. So I guess like everyone has to go hang out with women who are more welcoming and then just send exactly. straight dudes into the men's locker room. That's the only people who belong. They only oh, do belong, exactly. Yeah. And we gathered and braided each other's hair. That's right, um, exactly. <laughs> Painted each other's nails. Talked about exactly. feelings. <laughs> um. Exactly. So, so I started off, to answer your question, I started off fighting homophobia. I would say in 2021, I'm still, you know, fighting homophobia, especially when you look at what's going on with the anti-trans bills sweeping yeah. all across the country. So, um, yeah, I'm... I'm of course, I'm still like aware of, I'm still cognizant of it. It's just that I'm not defined by it. Were you open about it? I, I know you said that you were you were out, but I mean, in the spaces that you went into, how did that interviewer know that you were gay? Because I told them. Okay, so you I were told open everybody. about it, and you I weren't concerned about, hey, if I say this, I'm not going to get this no. job, or I'm not going to get sent on this gig. No, that's the reason why I said it. Because I wanted to know if it was the kind of place that if I said this, I would lose mm. my job. I would wow. much rather know you were a bigot beforehand than get yeah. here and then find out later. That's so, I mean, it's it's true that you would want that, but it's also brave to, to, to say I'm willing to give up opportunities instead of hoping that you'll adjust or, or change your mind, you know? Well, it goes back to why I came out to begin with. And I used to, when I used to give college speeches, I don't do so much anymore. But when I used to, um, I would tell everyone who asked me this question, this answer. And that was, I was married to this incredibly beautiful Black woman who today holds a PhD, just to let you know, she was also brilliant. And I just had a beautiful baby boy. I had a church home. I was in the choir. I was a well-respected member of the community. And it wasn't me. And I gave it all up to be the real me. So I certainly wasn't going to not be the real me to a complete stranger if I couldn't be a fake me to people that I loved. So yeah. I was just always like, so I always said right off the bat, right during the interview, yo, Holmes, I'm gay. So let me know if that's <laughs> going to be good. a problem. <laughs> right. right. We, we good. We good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, no, we ain't good. Okay. I. Thank it is you. fascinating how um, you are straddling these uh, these various things that are either worn on your exterior or interior, right? So um, sometimes in conversations about privilege or bias, we talk about how white women have the privilege of their color of skin, but because they're women, they can't walk into a space and hide that, right? Black right. man like you, you, are, you will always be black and people will always see that, but being gay, unless you are outwardly stereotypically clear in that, in the way you, you identify and represent yourself, you can pass in spaces and it doesn't become something that's necessarily assumed. And so you're reconciling these different, um, identities that people will receive and react to. And I wonder, are there times that I guess it's, you're going to act and be like yourself, but are there times when you've ever felt you were in spaces and you felt unsafe being outward about your sexuality um, in part, because there is no way for you to hide your race. And now you're doubling up on ways that people might be looking to harm you. The, the only time in my life that I I f was unnerved, like genuinely unnerved was, I forgot what year it was, but it was in New Orleans. It was the NBA All-Star Weekend after Katrina. And I was on my way to like the Playboy party or whatever. And I was wearing a pair of jeans and a t-shirt that was tight. I was wearing a Shmedium. These were my Shmedium face. Shmedium, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I had a real strong You don't have to be gay to love face. a Shmedium shirt, Elsie. You do not have to be gay. <laughs> and I, I did not say that you needed to be. I yes, said this right. is just, just my face. face. Yes. This is my face. Yes. yes. I don't think I bought a large until I got 30. Anyway. <laughs> um, um, so my teacher was tight. And, you know, at that time period, and even still to today, but certainly back then, um, you know, 
triple XL t-shirts down in your knees. That's what we were rocking, blah, blah, blah. So they kind of already knew the group that saw me, you know, something was up. And one of them uh, said something to me. And um, <laughs> in retrospect, I should have ignored it. But at that time, I did not. And I said something back and he said something and I said something. And in my head, I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to scrap with this one dude. Right. And you're a big dude. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm all right. I'm six, two, a little over 200 pounds. I, you know, I, I'm pretty comfortable in my own skin. If we have to get into a, you know, a fight with one dude, unfortunately it wasn't one dude. Mm. <laughs> and so um, I was surrounded basically. And I was in my head thinking that I was going to die. Mm. And if it wasn't for a pair of police officers who just happened to be driving by and happened to, to notice what was going on, um, wow. uh, I uh, my story may have turned out a little bit differently. Yeah. 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 But um, that was the only time that um, and I mean, I'm I'm pretty much like me everywhere I go. Um, but that was the only time being me, I felt my life was in danger. When you went into locker rooms and spaces with athletes early on, after acknowledging who you were and becoming transparent with yourself and others, did you think to yourself at every turn, am I acting gay or how am I behaving and what are they going to think of me? Because I certainly, as a woman going into spaces that are almost all men, when I was in my early 20s, it was constantly like, what am I what am I wearing? How do I look? What am I, am I asking the question, right? Am I looking at anyone funny? Like, is, are they looking at me funny? And there's this incredible, like just uptight about going into those spaces and wondering how I was being received. And I wonder if you felt the same way or questioned what you were, what messages you were sending. Um, that's a fantastic question because I really kind of split down the middle. Um, never uncomfortable in a locker room unless I heard the word, faggot or something mm. then i kind of look around and wonder if they're talking to me or just each other and not to say that one is better than the other but certainly in that environment one gave me more comfort than the other um but i would say the most work that i've done in this space on myself is being comfortable being a sexual being and what i mean by that is you know how, like, on Will and Grace, like, Will was never getting laid? Right, right. But he was constantly reminding people he was gay. Yeah. But he would never get laid or rarely get laid. And I was always wondering, how is it possible that a good-looking white dude <laughs> with that job in that apartment can't find any action? And it was because America wasn't ready for Will to have any action. Mm. We were ready to accept asexual gays but we were still kind of right. straddling the fence or on jack it. right this extreme, or jack this extreme exactly. sort of stereotype of what it is to be gay is okay right. but not someone that might present and then and then worry us with us not knowing immediately whether we should be you know acting differently right and, and jack too unfortunately is a good-looking guy who, who's extremely talented and funny and charming and you know you never saw him in a healthy, long-term relationship, blah, 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 blah. Not yeah, to wasn't say that until later in the show when they right. sort of introduced those, yeah, those characters. Right. And, and yeah. not that that needs to be the goal. You know, it's just that there seems to be a trend in which that's never the goal. <laughs> right. <laughs> At least right. back then. At least yeah. back then. So anyway, um, you know, that was a little tangent there on sexuality. But right. so me getting comfortable acknowledging that an athlete was good looking took some work. Mm -hmm. that that took some work cisgender heterosexual dudes have no idea how much privilege they have in the smallest of things that you can say Tom Brady's a good looking guy and your worst fear is people might think you're gay whereas for me me saying Tom Brady's a good looking guy could be career ending right that's why I love I, I do love how the Levitard show never says anything about attractive women and as a group of all straight dudes uh they go to town on the hot dudes in sports like they, they right. have and they do it in a way that's very freeing to others to not be stereotypical and 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 is much more comfortable for me as a woman who's so used to shows 
you know, getting on tangents where they're talking about whether women are either, you know, really good looking or lost their fastball. And it's about the only time a woman ever comes up um, right. for it to be the opposite of that is, is it's, it's intentionally kind of skewering the norm. Um, but you're right. And same goes, you know, for women. Um, right. We don't, we don't get to, you know, if I, if I make a crack about, you know, not fair that the, uh, the Patriots have Jimmy Garoppolo and Tom Brady, you can't like hoard all the good looking ones. And this is why women don't belong in sports. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Or if you want to have fun <laughs> and play around and be comedic and absurd, everything is sexualized, which is the same for right. you, right? Like right. I can't do the funny things that men in the business do because everything I do is sexualized, even if nothing I'm doing is remotely sexual, just by virtue of being a woman, it becomes that to the audience. Same goes for you as a gay man. Right. Right. And I wrestled with that for years and years and years and years and years and years, you know, and, you know, it felt as if there was an aspect of myself that was being closeted because I was hesitant to be at like an SP party or something and acknowledge that someone looked good. Right. right. <laughs> you know? yeah. like, like, it's just so much extra work that goes into or calculus that goes into functioning in a world that's dominated by something that you are not. Mm -hmm. Um well, and it's fascinating, too, because it's the idea that the viewer or the audience will apply to you things that you are not putting out there or or don't express, yep. <laughs> but you are not allowed to then step into those th those parts of yourself. Like as a woman in the business, you have to act asexual. I am not right. attracted to any of these people. I never would be. I would never do anything with any of them. Otherwise, you think I'm here because I'm a groupie and I'm not here for the job. But at the same right. time, no matter what I'm doing, as serious as an interview may be, a photo I take with children, you're still going to project that onto me when you yeah, exactly. To. So I have exactly. to be asexual, but you get to sexualize me at every turn. It's completely. Yeah, oh, absolutely. 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 One gazillion percent, which is why when I started doing radio, I, I challenged that. I started acknowledging good looking men. Yeah. And then and then, you know what I started doing? I started I started this running bit on our radio show where I would recruit based upon how good looking you were. So like <laughs> if you were if there were free agents, like it's, it was like the height of baseball season. And we were to our free agents and the guys would say, what about this guy? And I go, ah, it's a good batting average. Uh, but, 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 but really, he's not really good looking enough for that kind of money that we're going to spend. Yeah, ouch, that's funny. That's really <laughs> it was, funny. And it was, like a, it was like a running bit. And so I yeah. remember saying that we should sell Dodger Stadium so we can get Bryce Harper. Keisha <laughs> <laughs> would just laugh and just say, you're so stupid. Yeah. And I'm like, well, he's so good looking. He's going to be really expensive. We may need to right, lease some property. Right. Yeah. <laughs> he's that expensive kind of hot. Oh, that's yeah, great. There you go. But, um, it was, but it was like a, it was a fun way for me yeah. to, to give myself permission to be human. Right. We did that on the trifecta, which was my show with Kate Fagan and Jane McManus during March Madness because of all the bullshit uh, jokes about how women pick their March Madness brackets on like the cutest outfits. We each yeah. did one <laughs> that was based on a stereotype. So I think like Kate's was like which mascot would win. Jane's was cutest outfits <laughs> and mine was hottest coaches. And that year was actually like a really good year for hot coaches. I believe it was when Villanova won. So Jay Wright oh, was making Jay a Wright. run. Right? Yes, he's a number and one so, seed. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I'm posting this on Twitter and I'm, I'm saying, you know, per our trifecta conversation, take a look at my hot coaches bracket and the number of people in the mentions authentically and with genuine concern. Listen, Sarah, I'm a fan, but this is one of the reasons that people don't take women seriously with this. Like we're, we're not genuinely and kindly just assholes. Like look right. at this dumb bitch doing it. And I'm like, this is the point I'm satirizing it. Like get on board right. and have fun with it because I want to have fun with it. If I have to deal with this shit every day, I'm not just going to let you guys do this and not right. play off of it. And I love that you were doing that too. And interesting, you know, how long have you been doing radio in LA? Uh, five years now. I was going to say, because, um, Steve Mason, uh, who was hosting back when I lived in LA and I used to listen to, you know, LA sports radio all the time when I lived out there, um, came out as gay in 2016. Um, you guys are dominating the market for, for openly gay <laughs> male sports radio hosts. Like that's de definitely the most in any market. I think it might be the only one because the industry is just entirely made up of, you know, middle-aged cisgender straight white dudes. I know, which is like absolutely like ridiculous, but I get it, right? Like 
I, I get, I understand how that comes to be because it does take a certain kind of person to have to want to wade through this culture to mm-hmm. find their own space, right? Yeah, what's wrong with uh, you? Why are we doing it. that? What's wrong with yeah. this? <laughs> I, I think because, you know, we like being where we aren't supposed to be to find out why we aren't supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I could have stayed in features. You know, you could have continued pursuing acting. We could have tried to like, you know, be where we were supposed to be and do what we were supposed to do. I could have given that a, a, a really good college try, but that's boring. Yeah. Everybody's already doing that already. Agreed. And it's, and, and also I think if you just decide that you can't be restricted by where other people think you belong, then you make space where you want to be and you figure out how to yeah. make that space for yourself. Let's talk about one of the things that you're doing now that is about making space for something that matters to you and also why it's still relevant in 2021. You have this new podcast with ABC News um, called Life Out Loud, and um, it's a it's, you know, debuting now during Pride Month and it's about pride, but many issues, right? You've got everything from episodes about the show Pose, which is in its last season to uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci coming on to talk not only about um, COVID, but about his role back during the AIDS crisis. You've got Rufus Wainwright on celebrating Judy Garland's birthday. It's all those things that you've done in your past of, you know, politics, entertainment, uh, sports, all of that together. Why now? And, and why in 2021, do you still think it's, it's necessary and important to be intentional about these conversations? Wow. So why now? Um, why now is a multi-tiered answer because there's the personal aspect of it. And then there are the circumstantial aspects of it. Personally, it's taken me this long to be comfortable with me just being me and all of me-ness. What they show with my name attached to it and all my me-ness. It's taken me a long time to just get comfortable with that. Um, I always prefer to play with others because I do love playing with others, but you're so brave, Sarah. I was never able to just do what you're doing right now three years ago. Mm, that's surprising. Not even, you know, like it's it's been like a long, long process to get like this comfortable to be able to be in this space um, without feeling like an imposter. Um, and then the other aspect of it, the timing, the timing of it. Um, in my work in politics, one of the most frustrating aspects of the previous administration was knowing the rights for LGBTQ plus people that was being systematically dismantled Mm -hmm. and seeing how difficult it was to get those stories on television, on the front page, in media. We were so consumed with everything else and justifiably so, there were a lot of things to be concerned with, including just the very state of our democracy Uh, which is still an ongoing conversation. Uh, But seeing what was happening to my community and my people, especially our most vulnerable, our trans kids, just trying to find, you know, some sense in this world Mm -hmm. and seeing them being targeted by billionaires and millionaires and and, and elected officials, I I had to do something. And so I I thought about quitting journalism and running for office. I thought about, um, you know, joining a nonprofit uh, that fought this. And then I, I, I remembered what, uh, what a buddy of mine told me, which was they're trying to erase us. Mm. And so the podcast life out loud is me fighting that attempt to erase us, putting our stories on record from a variety of different perspectives with a major news network making sure that they don't succeed in erasing us. You know, you mentioned some of the more recent things that feel so antiquated and it feels like in 2021, how are we still having to fight these sort of things? But it's everything from, like you mentioned, the the anti-trans bills. And I recently did a podcast about youth, you know, sports and trans and bills that opt, allow parents to opt out of 
LGBTQIA lessons for their kids or, yes. you know, removing homosexuality from sex education class, um, forbidding discussing LGBTQIA, even in the classroom, a discussion of it. Um, and to your point, some of the things that I think shock people, you could still be fired if your employer finds out you're gay in 28 states. You could still lose your house if your landlord disapproved of being gay in 29 states. Things that it feels like we're so far past. And um, that's why I think as as sad as it is, this is incredibly necessary. Let's actually quickly address the idea that some people say that pride being embraced by corporations, being sort of turned into this commodified rainbow colored thing is bad. There's a part of me that sees that as necessary because those who are not having these meaningful conversations need to be sort of beat over the head with it. And it needs to come into the spaces that they're in because they're not going to go looking for this and enter the spaces where the real conversations are happening. But I know a lot of people would disagree with that. Where do you stand on that? As someone who uh, was very blessed to be part of the sort of brainstorming team that's helped start the employee resource groups at ESPN. Um, I would tell you there's an aspect to this conversation in terms of corporations being involved with pride that I don't think gets enough oxygen, which is a lot of these corporations have employee resource groups or order other organizations within of its body that's filled with queer people who are trying to make this happen. That's filled with employees who are allies to this cause, who are yeah. pushing to make this happen, who are trying to change the culture of their company and they are using this opportunity as a way to do that, to help change policies for the other employees at that company that are trying to make this thing happen. So while I certainly understand um, being somewhat frustrated that Pride has lost the protest nature of its roots, um, it's not dying, it's evolving. Mm -hmm. And that evolution is what we should be happy about. Because when Pride started, you couldn't be openly gay in a work environment. When Pride started, you certainly couldn't talk about um, that organization or that company donating to the human rights campaign. So I get it. There is a sense of gentrification <laughs> that's been going on. Um, but I think what we should do with that energy or that frustration is that instead of saying that Pride is, you know, has lost its way, it's just get involved in the direction in which it should go. Case right. in point, um, there are corporations, Sarah, that support Pride, but are also donating to anti-LGBTQ politicians. Right, AT&T. Yeah, exactly. So let's take that energy about the frustration of corporate, corporate America and put pressure on corporate America to follow through to the 19th degree, the 20th degree, the millionth degree of what it means to be an ally and not just be an ally to slap on a rainbow t-shirt in June. That's what I was going to say is I think there's a missed opportunity there of criticizing the involvement of companies and instead using that involvement to hold them to the their feet to the fire about what are you actually doing interior in, in terms of policies and treatment of employees yeah. and then in terms of the money that you're donating and the resources that you're efforting because I think once you get people to say they're on the side of something it's much easier to try to hold them accountable. It was yeah. before sitting back in the shadows that it would it would be more exactly. difficult. So yeah, I mean, I do understand the frustration people have, but I think there, that to your point, it's, there's a real way to lean into the way it's changing and make it even more um, meaningful. Uh, we're out of time. I would love to talk to you so much more and I'm excited to listen <laughs> to your podcast, but you do have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the oh. Spanish Inquisition. It's 10 speed round questions. Number one, your current career, all of them, everything you do, it's many things. They're all canceled. What job do you do instead? Screenwriter. Ooh, interesting. Number two, what's the most scared you've ever been? Uh, when I lost my son at a, at a, at a state fair. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> How old was he? He might have been too. Oh no! Oh my gosh! How long? How long before you found him? Uh, what did it feel like? What was it really? <laughs> exactly. Because <laughs> it felt like an hour, but I think it was like twenty seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Uh, number three, you could be best in the world at one thing for one day. What is it? Best in the world at one thing for one day. I would love to be the best politician in the world. 
mm, just pass all the bills. Just, uh, uh, just pass uh, all the bills, uh, all the, yeah. all the heels orders. and all the feels. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, number four, what current celebrity could be music, politics, TV? Uh, would you most like to be your best friend? Oh, wow. Boy, current? It has to be current, right? Like not Yeah, I'd say current, not like in the past. Okay. That I want to be my best friend. Um, wow. I'm going to go with, I'm going to say Viola Davis. Ooh, good one. She seems pretty badass. She, seems- she is. She's so badass, but she's also really thoughtful. Yeah. So she's not reckless with her with her no. bass ad. And she seems fun too. She seems fun too. <laughs> she's, she's, she definitely seems she's fun. not too much of a serious Absolutely. badass. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Number five. What's your biggest, most meaningless pet peeve? Oh my gosh! Uh, coming home from the grocery store and not putting the pickles in the refrigerator. <laughs> Specifically, the pickles. Because <laughs> if you don't put the pickles in the refrigerator, Sarah, someone has to eat a warm pickle. Yeah, and then they're not crisp. Nobody They're likes not Chris, a floppy that first, pickle. No one wants a floppy pickle. <laughs> it's going to be the title of this episode. <laughs> Just let people guess <laughs> where we're going with it. <laughs> uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Oh, man. Most embarrassed I've ever been. Uh, I think when my, recently when my son read me for uh, prescribing gender norms. Oh, okay. The and I didn't realize. Teaching I, the dad. <laughs> Girl, I didn't even know I was doing it. And then he read me and I was like, oh, ooh, am I in the library? I just got read. <laughs> I felt that way at dinner the other night. It was me and my husband and then two lesbian couples. And I was like talking to them about trans youth in sports. And I was like, why am I the person who is the voice of reason here? Like, get it together, gays. Like, let's do this. Um, <laughs> um, I was like, what did you say again? I want to write that down, Sarah. It's right. bad. <laughs> uh, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve oh man my calves <laughs> you skip leg like day or just working... genetically not a... no yeah. just genetically like yeah. i am like on leg day probably three times a, <laughs> a week and my calves are like going sorry bitch we ain't doing it well you know what some people <laughs> like a chicken leg so i i personally appreciate a chicken <laughs> leg so you got fans out there. Uh, number Ooh. eight, any musician or band alive or dead could play your next party. Who is it? Prince. Oh, so good. Prince. Number nine, what would you consider your biggest failure? Ooh, my biggest failure. Not having enough courage to come out before getting married. Hmm. Yeah. That's that would be one, it. Though. There's so many things oh. at play there. Oh, God, yeah. God, yeah. But I'm, I'm really hard on myself about, yeah. about a lot of things. And that's yeah. one of them. Number 10, what three individual words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Um, that he tried. Hmm. Interesting. And then finally, bonus question. Who should I have on this podcast? Who's someone amazing and interesting? Doesn't have to be sports related. Really anyone in the world. So I had the opportunity to interview Sherry Cola from the Freeform show, uh, Good Trouble. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I haven't but it's seen it. Really, it's really good. Um, uh, at, at times, I find it to be just a little heavy-handed in terms mm-hmm. of the preachiness of it. But right. overall, I think it's a fantastic show. She's brilliant in it. More importantly, she's brilliant away from it. Okay. It was one of the most hilarious uh, episodes that we taped. Um, she's such a joy. I love her to death. Sherry Cola. All right. I'm into it. Also, great name. Is that her given right? name? It's supposed to sound like Sherry Cola, I'm guessing. Uh, <laughs> I'll to ask if that was her, her born name. Or, I'll, uh, the I'll, let name. You, I'll let you answer that mystery in your next episode. Okay. Looking forward Ooh. to it. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on, LZ. It was fantastic. No, thank you so much for having me and for being my therapist. You have me work through a lot of stuff. That comes up a lot on this. Yeah, I I'm, I just get to be really nosy and then say it's about a podcast when really I'm just a very curious person. Get to ask all the questions I've always wondered. I know. Don't tell anybody that. that that's the secret to our success. That's what she said. Oh, yeah. One more thing. 
This is where I tell you something great to read or watch or listen to. This is where I rant or I rave about something. And as Pride Month continues, I continue my series asking guests, what does pride mean to you? Take it away, Elsie. Pride means to me being able to walk down the street holding my husband's hand without needing to look over my shoulder or he needing to look over his. Pride to me is buying him flowers. And when the woman asks, you know, what's the occasion, being able to answer it without changing pronouns. And pride to me is that time of year where our friends and family gather to mourn the loss, celebrate the gain, and recharge the resiliency. Beautiful, Elsie. And actually some great inspiring news in sports this week, this Pride Month, as Monday saw Raiders defensive lineman Carl Nassib become the first active NFL player in history to announce that he's gay. He posted on Instagram, just wanted to take a quick moment to say, that I'm gay. I've been meaning to do this for a while now, but finally feel comfortable getting it off my chest. I really have the best life, the best family, friends, and a job that a guy can ask for. I'm a pretty private person, so I hope you guys know I'm not doing this for attention. I just think that representation and visibility are so important. I actually hope that one day videos like this and the whole coming out process are not necessary. But until then, I will do my best and my part to cultivate a culture that's accepting and compassionate. And I'm going to start by donating $100,000 to the Trevor Project. They're an incredible organization. They're the number one suicide prevention service for LGBTQ youth in America. And they're truly doing incredible things. I'm very excited to be a part of it and help in any way that I can. And I'm really pumped to see what the future holds. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell gave his support to NASA telling out sports in a statement, quote, the NFL family is proud of Carl for courageously sharing his truth today. Representation matters. We share his hope that someday soon, statements like his will no longer be newsworthy as we march toward full equality for the LGBTQ plus community. We wish Carl the best of luck this coming season. And as Outsports pointed out, uh, there have been 15 players who came out after playing and Michael Sam in 2014 came out after being drafted but never made a roster. Uh, so Nassib is uh, the first openly active gay or bi player to uh, have played it down in an NFL regular season game. Carl is helping so many people with this brave decision, and I really hope his teammates, opponents, fans, everyone at the Raiders treat him with so much love and kindness and prove to other athletes that sports can be a safe and loving place to live your true and authentic life. Way to go, Carl. So awesome. Uh, you can always tweet me, at Sarah Spain. Always go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe. To That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Rate five stars, please. Give me a review. And thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's What She Said 